Welcome to the Leadership Window podcast with Dr. Patrick Jinks. Each week through a social sector lens, Patrick interviews leaders and experts and puts us in touch with trends and tips for leading effectively. Patrick is an LSI certified leadership coach, a member of the Forbes Coaches Council, a best-selling author, award-winning photographer, and a professional speaker. And now, here's Dr. Patrick Jinks. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Episode 74 of the Leadership Window Podcast. I'm Patrick Jinks. Glad you're along. We are going to move a little more toward the technical side of nonprofit leadership today. Um, and one of the just sort of core functions of a nonprofit, a critical backbone function of a nonprofit, we're going to talk a little bit about finance and accounting. Yum, yum. Exciting topic for most of us, I know. Accounting and finance. I, um, I made it through an MBA um, somehow even though managerial finance and accounting and economics and all those kind of finance things were a part of it. Somehow I made it through. Don't ask me how I don't know, but I did it. Uh, it is definitely not my bag, but I will tell you, I've learned a lot as a, uh, practitioner of leadership in the nonprofit sector. And, um, probably more there than I did in my MBA, went through a great MBA program, but there's nothing like getting it from experience. But my guest today is Alex Romero, and she is the virtual chief financial officer for Chris Herbeshawn CPA. That is an accounting firm based in Hilton Head, South Carolina, where I know a lot of our listeners are. Alex is actually in Pueblo, Colorado. She is directing financial planning, financial reports, and financial strategies for nonprofit organizations, as well as digital marketing agencies around the country. And uh, she knows her stuff when it comes to nonprofit finance. She's a Colorado State University Accounting Hall of Fame inductee. She's a multiple CPA award winner. She was recognized last year as one of the top 50 women in accounting. Alex, welcome to the program. I'm I'm excited, believe it or not. It's accounting and finance, but I am a little bit excited about what we're going to talk about today. And it might not be what, what a lot of listeners are, are thinking of, but welcome to the show. Thanks for connecting with us. Thank you so much. And I'm excited to hear that you are excited about finance and accounting <laughs> today. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know... Uh, some people are right. I mean, that's, yeah. that's what makes it, that's what makes the world go around. But mm-hmm. I think for a lot of leaders and even, you know, CEOs of nonprofits, you start talking about taxes or mm-hmm. audits or accounting or finance and all that. And it starts to, and it's not that it's boring. It's that it's intimidating. I think for most mm-hmm. people, it's just such an intimidating thing because it, there's a, it's a, it's a scientific competency and, and there's also some art to it. <laughs> Wouldn't you, would you agree to that? Absolutely. And <laughs> if it's something that you haven't had a lot of knowledge around, it, it can be very intimidating because you don't want to get it wrong. Yeah. So yeah, I, well, can, I, I absolutely understand that. Well, I will say this, you, you tell me if you view it differently, don't be afraid at all to do that. But to me, the best way that I can help see uh, CEOs is to say, it's not about the math. You know, I think mm-hmm. we're intimidated by the math. What what I've mm-hmm. discovered is that the financial picture really to to lighten your mind's stress a little bit. It's really just it's a story. It's a plan, mm-hmm. it's a story, it's a framework. It's less about the math. There's 
there are the experts and the software that will do the math for you. You just need to know conceptually what it is we're looking at and why. Would you agree? I would absolutely agree. It's, it is about the story and it's looking at things at a wider view and not worrying about those nitty gritty because that's who, why you're going to have a finance team to take care of that part. But you can concentrate on the bigger pictures and how everything works together. Yeah. Um, I want you to just start by saying a little bit more about the work that you do. I gave a brief introduction, but you know, tell us about the firm. Tell us about your, your work with nonprofits and, and tell us how you got to this place. What brought you to this profession? And Yes. Wonderful. So um, like you mentioned, after college, I, I got into the accounting profession and I've done things both internally and externally with nonprofits. So I have been uh, part of a an accounting firm that specialized in auditing nonprofit organizations and doing the tax returns. And then I've also was most recently a chief financial officer for a governmental agency that was also a nonprofit. So I've been on both sides of that. And mm. then I also was a volunteer for many smaller nonprofits, being a board member. And as a CPA, I always seem to be designated the treasurer. And I could see that need from being an auditor, especially because there's a lot of nonprofits, they might not be large in size, but because of a grant or something else, they have to have an, an audit performed. And with being a volunteer and asked to do the finances, I saw that there's a great need for nonprofits that are smaller in size for somebody that understands and can do the accounting and be able to relate that information to the executive director and the board. So what we do at Chris Hervishon is we have packages set up and they're based on kind of the size you are of a nonprofit. So we have small nonprofits package, a tier two for midsize, and then our largest tier is for those that are going to be getting audited. And so we really go in and we design what we're going to do based on what you're going to have in a normal cadence. So if you have grants, tracking those, making sure that you're in compliance with donors. So we do all that, but we do it at a price that is affordable for the smallest package is less than what you could afford a bookkeeper that probably won't have nonprofit specific knowledge. Mm. So that's our goal is to be able to help these nonprofits and have them be sustainable and help them being able to focus on their mission and vision. And we take care of the accounting on our side and are able to speak through what's happening and help them be able to budget and think about the future. Now you and I connected briefly a few weeks ago just to Mm -hmm. introduce ourselves to each other. And one of the things I learned that I hadn't really thought about much, you know, in this virtual world, I hadn't really thought Mm -hmm. about virtual accounting. Most of, you know, in my experience in the nonprofit sector, our, if we outsourced anything, it was a local accounting firm. If we had an audit done, it was a local accounting firm. These were usually someone who, you know, had, had been on your board or they were, you know, there were, there were usually three or four accounting firms that kind of did all the, you know, nonprofit stuff. And some of them did it pro bono, et cetera. 
but you're now doing it virtually. And so that means, you know, the firm's based in Hilton Head, you're in Pueblo, but you're now serving nonprofits all over the country because it's virtual. And I'm guessing that's part of the virtual nature of it is part of what is is able to bring the price down. But now it's about Mm -hmm. nonprofits can access you in Pueblo, Colorado, even though they're in, you know, Columbia, South Carolina. Yes, absolutely. And that's what a lot of a lot of nonprofits went to having their board meetings online. And so I know at the library district, that is something that we did. And then as we were able to have things in person, even our auditors, which were only 100 miles up the road, it was easier for them to be able to engage with our board through virtual meetings. So while we would be all in one room, we would be able to video them in. And so even though some organizations have gone back to being more in person, there's now that capability to be able to speak to and work with individuals that aren't sitting right across the table. And you're able to have that expertise from somebody that you might not otherwise have if you are only focused on what's available locally. Yeah, I think this is one of those areas where the virtual and remote um, toolkit is really effective and valid. I, people who know me know, I don't like this online meeting stuff. I, just, I mm-hmm. it was great during a pandemic when, you know, it saved us because we were able to con- conduct business and continue to get things done as boards. But as we've come out of that sort of pandemic phase and, and trying to return to some sense of normalcy, um, now it's the hybrid meetings. You got some of the people are in the room mm-hmm. and some of them are on the screen and, uh, a lot of board members now are just like, nope, I'll just call in. <laughs> you know, it's for some, it's an easy out, I think, even on the staff side. So uh, yeah. we won't go into that. We won't we won't go down that <laughs> rabbit hole. But um, but but there are some things. I mean, the technology that we have is incredible. And the fact that you're able to serve people from a distance and in many cases more efficiently than you would have otherwise. What is it about, you know, why, why the focus on nonprofits for you? Is there, do you have a, a, a you know, is there a, a particular passion for wanting to help that sector? Is it a different, is it a, is it a fundamentally different accounting in the nonprofit than it is the for-profit? What, what is it for you that resonates? What resonates with me is the missions of the nonprofits. So I have been a board member for multiple different nonprofits locally and even at the state level. And it's always about being able to provide those services and further the mission and be able to do more. And it's difficult when you have such a limited budget and you're trying to get all this done and I, since I have this skill set to be able to do nonprofit accounting, since it's something I have been doing for so long, it it's something that I can contribute to those organizations. And so it really is something that I'm passionate about. And I've done a lot with children and family nonprofits and to be able to see the work that's done and being able to engage and participate in some of the programs as well. So um, one of the things that I always do in the winter time is go over to our local CASA and wrap presents for the children. And so it's just, it's just having that purpose and knowing that what I'm doing is really helping so many more individuals than just 
feeling like, yes, I'm doing the accounting, I'm helping the board, I'm helping the executive director. No, what we're doing is we're enabling the organization to be able to reach all of those individuals that they are trying to. Yeah, let me, This is, I'm going to pull a question just really out of thin air here. The, mm-hmm. the term nonprofit, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what is your take on the term? Uh, there's, a, there's a lot, I mean, even through the years, there's been a lot of conversation about what the term actually means, what it doesn't mean. Yeah, um, absolutely. It, yeah, I mean, sh- should, should nonprofits make a profit? Let, let's start there from, a, from an accounting expert's point of view. Yes, it, absolutely. Because what happens in a year that you maybe don't get that big grant or that large donation and you've been budgeting and working at not having any profit? How long can you operate? Yes, you need to make sure that you have reserves and that if something doesn't pan out or something doesn't come through that you're able to keep working as a nonprofit. So yes, the the term nonprofit, it, I think a lot of people look at it as, oh, we need to make sure that we have a balanced budget that it nets to zero and we aren't bringing in any profit, but that is not the case. You would want to be able to have those funds available so that if you need to, or if you want to do something different, so say there's something that you want to expand on, how are you going to be able to do that and plan for that if you don't have some cash set aside to be able to do these different activities or maybe fund a new building or location or whatever it may be? Well, I couldn't agree more. So I'm, I'm thrilled to hear you say it. Um, and, you know, I, people have tried different terms in hopes that it would catch on, you know, community benefit organization or not for profit or social, you know, social impact organization. And it, it just doesn't catch on because the nonprofit sector and, you know, we're a nonprofit just that's just how we're trained is how it works. So I try every opportunity I get to make the clarification. If we're going to use the term nonprofit, let's at least acknowledge that that's not really what it means. And and it's really, to me, it's a misnomer. I hate the term. Yeah. And it's really more about a tax designation. That's right. That you're not taxed on your profit. That's right. That's right. So, um, Let's talk, let's dig in just a little bit on some of the financial perspective that you have uh, for the, for the sector. Um, The most, I would say most of our listeners, if they're in the nonprofit sector, they're in small nonprofits. I mean, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of nonprofits are small. If you just do the distribution curve. So most of us are small. I have some experience running small nonprofit organizations and it can get tricky because my philosophy and leadership is act like a big organization, even though, even though you're small. So we always just acted big. And uh-huh. yet, um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a particular story as this gets into some of the technicals right away. I remember having auditors come into our organization where we had, you know, four staff people, auditors coming in and saying, oh, you need this internal control and you need that internal control and you need to separate your duties. Some, someone who gets the mail needs to be a different person who opens it, who needs to be a different person who puts it in the computer, who needs to be a different person that collects it from the company you picked it up from. And there's all, and we're like, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not practical Mm -hmm. for us. Like we just, 
And so there are those uh, accountants that we've worked with who have said, okay, well, then how practical can it be? Because what you want to do is reach the greatest degree of internal control possible, but still feasible that doesn't, doesn't affect your functions. I, now, I just tell that story, not, not for you to necessarily address that particular issue, but mm-hmm. to, to maybe give your take on the difference between a large nonprofit and a very small nonprofit when it comes to accounting requirements, the practicalities of some of these internal controls and mechanisms that, that auditors like to see. Um, mm-hmm. What are some of the best practices you've seen in helping small nonprofits cope with doing accounting properly as, mm-hmm. as you would think a large nonprofit is doing. Yes, that is a huge concern because absolutely, if you have four people, how can you have duties that would take eight people? It's just not going to happen. So as an auditor, what we used to really concentrate on is making sure that you had what your processes and procedures were well documented so that you could say, well, we have one individual that does this and a different one that can do this piece, but then you might have the board as one of the other steps so that we we go through and every month we make sure that we have a checklisting there and so there's different ways that you can be creative about separating those duties and it's also about so one of the good things about us um, our firm is that we do add that extra layer of internal control because it is something that's very important but just having a good tone at the top making sure that things are being scanned and reviewed so you can you can build those in even on a smaller team but it's always inevitable that when it's a smaller group there are just some things that you can't separate. And so you have to do it the best that you can and make sure that you have well-documented how you go through from receiving a check all the way to it being deposited into the bank and then how it's being used and just having transparency around that and making sure that it's not one individual, that there at least is two, maybe three that have awareness and the ability to see everything that's going on. Well, you just gave two examples of being able to extend those internal controls. One is let's not forget we have a board of directors and we can Mm -hmm. use that board of directors, the treasurer, the finance committee, maybe even an audit committee in addition to the Mm -hmm. finance committee. Mm -hmm. And the other that you mentioned is the outsourced accountant. And so this, Mm -hmm. one of the questions I had for you today is what are the advantages and disadvantages of outsourcing your bookkeeping? And you just Mm -hmm. gave, I think one, one advantage, which is it extends your internal control. Um, beyond the three or four or five staff people that you have, you now have a professional outsource who's more responsible for making sure that control is really set. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we have a team. So you would have three, maybe four individuals working on your finances. So within that, we have internal controls that we would be able to tell the auditors, yes, they do this at the organization in person. And then once the information comes to us, this is what we do to separate those duties. What's the biggest, mm, what's the biggest vulnerability or poor practice 
mistake, whatever you want to call it, that you see small nonprofits or even large ones make when it comes to internal controls? What do you frequently see? And and not because they want to do bad. They just, maybe they don't know, or they don't, they haven't come up with creative ways to do it. What are some of the things you see that internal control, poor internal control can lead to? So when you first said that, first thing that pops to mind is cash. Cash has legs and it walks out very easily. And so it does get back to that, not having one person that is collecting the cash or the payments and then depositing it and reconciling it. Because what you've done is you've provided an opportunity where nobody knows what came in except for one individual. And how would anyone know if something's missing? And so that's one of the biggest things is that a lot of times you see smaller nonprofits, somebody has been working there doing the books for 20 years and they say, oh, they would never do that. We trust them. And it's not about trust. The thing is you want to have rules and procedures around how you're handling some of these financial transactions to protect both sides so that if something does go missing, the bookkeeper can say, oh no, this is this is what I did. I did it based on how we're supposed to do it. Let's look through this and see what might happen. So that's the way that you have to frame it rather than, well, this looks like we don't trust the person. No, that's not about trust. It's about making sure that you're building in the protection so that your funds are there and everything is counted for so that you're able to provide the services based on your mission. That's what it always has to go back to is that you have to think what's the most important and what is going to help us be able to serve 10 more children or be able to do this program on another night. That's got to be your main focus. Yeah. Or to not be questioned by the auditors as to, you know, motive. Yeah. And I I remember back, you know, when I first got my start in nonprofits, it was with United Way Mm -hmm. and United Way runs these workplace campaigns. And so you go into the Acme manufacturing company and you, you make a bunch of presentations and you ask people to fill out a pledge form and they fill out the pledge form and they have a choice. They can give through payroll deduction or they can write a check or they can put cash in, in the box. And so it all goes into an envelope. All the pledge forms goes into an, a, a big letter size envelope. All the cash goes in the envelope with the pledge forms. And on the front of the envelope, there is the form that's filled out or sometimes inside. And it says, here's how many pledge forms. Here's how much of it is payroll deduction. Here's how much cash I put in the envelope. And the campaign coordinator at the company signs off on it and says, I've put this together and I'm handing it to you sealed. And this is what's in it. So now the campaign staff for United Way goes and picks up the envelope, takes it back to the office, takes it to maybe the bookkeeper and the bookkeeper opens it rather than the campaign staff opening it. Because then if there's cash missing, now the campaign staff could get questioned about that. But if the bookkeeper opens the envelope in front of the staff person and looks at it and says, oh, so on the form it says there's $100 cash in here, but there's only 80. There must be missing a $20 bill or a check. Let's let's contact the coordinator back at the company and see maybe what went wrong and um, see what we can do there. But then there's no question on the part of the staff. So I like your perspective on it. It's about protection for everybody, not just walking around and suspecting everybody. It's more about protection and, 
and good stewardship there. What are some of the other common mistakes that you see in accounting or financial management um, or even financial strategy? What are some of the common pitfalls you see nonprofits fall into? So some of the common pitfalls would be not tracking and looking at your grants and donor restrictions and making sure that you're adhering to those. So a lot of times there are organizations that they receive this money and they don't, if there's turnover or something, you don't know what it's for. You don't know when it came in and that's something that I saw many times is that money would come in and then it would sit in an account and not knowing how the nonprofit could use it because nobody took the time or there isn't a good system in place to say, we got these donations, it needs to go to this. Or they would use the cash and then later you would find out when you're doing an audit that the way it was donated, they they didn't use it correctly. And so that's something that if you're not tracking what's coming in the door and for what reasons, it can make things get very messy and it can happen very quickly. I think it can also get messy when you start gambling with that cash. You know, if you, if you, if you have a restricted contribution come in, but your cash flow is weak, maybe because it's summertime and pledges are down in the summer. And so you get this restricted gift and you think, you know, we'll spend it over here. We'll spend it on payroll. We'll spend it on this initiative because that's what's right now. And we'll replace it later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. And so you're sort of gambling with that cash. And then what happens if that cash doesn't come later or someone questions it between now and the time that you actually use it. So you you Mm -hmm. can't, you can't play around with that stuff either. Do you see that often? I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking of a scenario, but I know that cash flow in small organizations can cause those kinds of, of decisions to get made. Yes. And so I would say on the auditor side, we didn't see that as much because I think that people would be trying to get that cleaned up and not let us into those conversations. Mm. But absolutely, I saw where funds were being used for things that they shouldn't have, whether it was because of a cash flow and somebody had that discussion or if it was just they didn't know any better and they had done this. But I also had seen when cash was something that was a a greater need applying for grants for things that you weren't currently doing and thinking you were going to then build that so if there was a grant that was for a program for children and yet you've never done this and you've applied for this grant just to get cash in the door thinking oh well we can spin something up and we'll be able to spend that so also being strategic and not just going out and trying to get any donation or grant to bring in cash you need to make sure that it aligns with what you're doing or if it is something new it's something that you have discussed and that it does still go with your mission so that was another pitfall i would see that they an organization would have cash sitting there and it's like well what what's this for well it's for a program but it's something we don't do and so we need to get something put together and so that's also a pitfall to have cash that you can't use because you just were trying to get any grant approved Wow. Yeah. I unfortunately have seen plenty of that in, (laughs) in the last couple of decades. And we call it grant chasing or, or even Mm -hmm. mission drift. There's different terms for it. 
Um, and it's difficult to try to get through the leader's mindset sometimes that it isn't about getting cash in the door. Don't, don't apply for grants just because there's money attached to it. Stay focused on the mission and let the money follow the mission. And so, you know, there are times when you can have a lost leader. There are times when nonprofits run programs that aren't centrally or directly impacting their mission, but they might be underwriting because they're revenue generating Perhaps mm -hmm. they might be underwriting a different part of the organization's mission, but that all has to be documented and accounted for the intention and the expectation have to be crystal clear up front, the capacity decisions, the board, I, I would say needs to be, you know, a part of at that level, yes. a part of those kinds of decisions, um, yes. as well. Um, one of the things that I saw on some, some of your material, I can't remember which, but I saw the phrase, setting up your nonprofit to have a sustainable impact. And, yes. you know, sustainability is one of those terms that's thrown around a lot in the sector. You know, mm -hmm. we, we want sustainability. We want a, a, a sustainable financial, um, we want financial sustainability. That's the term, the phrase I'm looking for. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes what that means is um, sustainability just simply means as long as we get, as long as we continue to get the grant renewed every year, it's sustainable. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and I've always questioned that definition yeah. of sustainable. What you're really talking about is continuity and the ability to withstand the losses of particular grants or major donors or state contracts and those kinds of things. Tell me, tell us what would be two or three things that nonprofits should consider when thinking about building sustainability from a financial standpoint. I think that what you mentioned is very true, not being so concentrated on what you're getting right now and what that grant is or what that program is. You need to have a budget that's looking at the first couple of years, maybe having that more tied to specific grants or donors, but then you need to look at maybe a five, a 10 year plan to see where you want to go and how you're going to get there and have it more tied to this is the amount of revenue that we'd need to bring in. These are the expenses that we foresee. And then as you get closer to each of those years, going through and fine tuning that to see where you might be able to apply for money or be able to have a new donation, something in there. But I think the real big thing for sustainability is to look at it for now into the future for X amount of years and being able to plan, especially, so one of the things that I think is important is capital planning, because what happens is the boiler goes out or something large. And so you need to be able to have cash available to take care of those. And so it's really about having a good plan for a budget and a forecast and using that as a roadmap with the idea that, yes, of course, five, 10 years, we don't know what it's going to be like, but this is just a way that we can have it set up so that we're not just driving the car blindly. We know where we want to go. And if we need to alter that and change it along the way, based on what's happening within the market or with our funding, or if we're growing, whatever it is, you can adjust, but at least you have that roadmap that shows you this is where we are trying to at least move towards. 
This next question might insult the intelligence of some of our listeners, but because I am in a lot of board meetings and boardrooms where they really don't understand, for example, what an endowment is and how an endowment is set up, oftentimes I see nonprofits get confused between an endowment and a reserve fund. Can you mm-hmm. talk about the difference between those two things? I think they both lend themselves to sustainability, but in very different ways. Yes, because an endowment, you're only allowed to use that for very specific reasons. And really, it's just there to sit there as cash for the eternity of the nonprofit. Really, what you need to concentrate on is building the reserve, which it can be a couple of different things. So it, it's that cash that's left over that is from um, w- what you brought in in your revenue versus your expenses in a year. And what you can do with that is you could make it a board designated reserve. So if the board says we need to make sure that we have at least 20% of what our expenses are for the year in reserve to make sure that if anything happens, we have this cash sitting here. So really the reserve is kind of what you can think of as a savings account, kind of like a rainy day. This money is sitting here so that if X, Y, and Z happens, we still have a way to pay our normal operating expenses. Reserves can also be those that are restricted based on a grant or a donation. So if you get a grant that's five years with you can only spend 10000 a year, that money is sitting in reserve so that every year you're spending that $10,000. So there can be restrictions that come from the outside or those that are internal based on what you have set up within your policies or with what the board is saying needs to be held back. I'd love to hear your recommendation on this too. When it comes to a reserve fund, you likened it to a savings account. And if I go to the credit union and open a savings account, I can go in and get that money pretty quickly. So it's pretty liquid. It's pretty accessible. Um, Mm -hmm. What is your recommendation on reserve funds some some very conservative financial committees and treasurers, for example, will recommend that much of the reserve goes into funds that are not so easy to access quickly. And I guess that's to 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 keep us from, you know, making a knee jerk mm-hmm. decision with the money. But is there a balance? Is there any kind of formula or balance or, you know, what what's your recommendation on creating reserve funds that are liquid versus not so liquid? Or not that yeah. I might not be using the right term, but no, that's absolutely it. It is about the liquidity. How how fast can you get that cash to pay that invoice that came in? And so, what I think a really good idea is to have the majority of your reserves being in an investment account. So, um, being with a TD Ameritrade or a Stiefel or, or something like that. And then I think you really need to look at what your policy would want to be. Is it that 20%? Is it making sure that we can cover four months of expenses, whatever that amount is that you're using as we need to make sure that we have this cash in case Right now, today, we're not going to have any more cash come in the door. The amount that you have for the three, four months, that should be what you have in what would be a savings account or a money market account or something that you can use that cash right away so that you don't have to wait to have it 
taken from an investment account to your bank account. It's really making that distinction as, okay, what, what do we need to make sure that we have in the bank to cover up to X amount of time or X amount of expenditures? I want to shift gears in a minute on uh, to some of the, the leadership functions. But before we do, stick with us, listeners. We're going to take a short break to hear from our sponsor, Leadership Systems. Hey, this is Michael Wallace with Leadership Systems Incorporated. And on behalf of LSI, I want to say thanks for supporting our friend Patrick Jinks and the Leadership Window podcast. We've been partnering with Patrick for many years, and we are so proud to have him represent us as an LSI certified executive coach. As a mutual friend, we'd like to offer you exclusive rates on some of the same training that Patrick has received over the years, as well as some new experiences that we've been developing. Head over to leadershipsystems.com slash jinx to see the upcoming training events on our calendar and register today to keep learning and growing. Again, that's leadershipsystems.com slash jinx, J-I-N-K-S, for exclusive pricing on LSI's virtual and in-person training events. Thanks a lot. Alex, um, what are what are some of the board practices that you would recommend when it comes to nonprofit financial stewardship? And let me give a nuance to that, why I'm asking that question. You know, I remember when Sarbanes-Oxley Act came out and it was pointed more toward the Enrons of the world, right? The, corp- the corporate America, but there were some implications for nonprofits as well, not quite as stringent and strict because the structure just wasn't the same. But I remember at the time I was in the United Way network and we implemented, I think very effectively some of the new controls and things like an audit committee that is separate from your finance committee. And you know, all all of those kinds of things that Sarbanes-Oxley recommended. Um, But again, back to we're a small organization. Um, What would be some of your top sort of two or three recommendations in terms of structure of board practice, board practice Mm -hmm. and structure that you would recommend for small to medium nonprofits uh, uh, to be really top stewards? Mm -hmm. And I think that when a lot of board members come and they are first on the board, they might not understand what they're supposed to do and know about the finances. And then if they hear too much outside information, it it can be a little daunting thinking that you're the one that's in charge of this and you need to be good stewards of the funds that are within the nonprofit. So what I think is a number one step is to have any new board member meet with whomever is doing your finances. So if you do, if you're if you do have a finance team internally or you have someone outsourced or even if it's your treasurer of the board, having them run through and just kind of describe on a very high level basis what the organization does, what the revenue looks like, what kind of happens throughout the year if we have a big fundraiser in February and then we have another event in July, just walking through that so that the new board member has a general sense of how the money is brought in and spent throughout the year. And then once they are, once they've gone through that training, they also know who to ask if they have more specific finance questions along the way. And also letting them know that that is part of their 
position is to ask those questions if they don't understand. And if they don't feel comfortable asking that in front of the entire board, they can bring it to you later and ask that you address it as part of your um, as part of your presentation at the next board meeting. I'm going to pause and say I love that idea. And here's what it makes me think of. All these nonprofits do, well, most, I think, uh, do some sort of board orientation. When you first come on the board, you get a manual and it's got all these sections. Here's the budget. Here's the strategic plan. Here's the staff directory. You know, here's the brochure, whatever. And you go through it. And for some, it's an hour. For some, I've seen them done 30 minutes before, you know, a board meeting or something like that. And sometimes I've seen half a day board retreats focused on orientation. Mm -hmm. What I love about what you just said is, I, th I can imagine having just a finance orientation, like mm -hmm. separate from when you do the board orientation, usually it's, you know, here's our budget and here's, we have our reserve fund set up at such and such. And here's the accountant we use and our audit mm -hmm. has been clean for the last whatever. And it's very, very surfacy, but yet if you were to go in and have just a finance orientation, you could talk about, again, I'll give the United Way story. Board members often got, re it took a while to understand how United Way cash works because mm -hmm. pledge receivables are very different because 90% of the pledges, at least when I was in the network, it's changed a little bit now, but 90% of the pledges are just promises to pay and so yeah. the cash isn't there until sometimes the following fiscal year. And so what year do they get counted in? And, and, and the difference between cash flow and revenue and all the, and we had to sit down and really explain, this is how our, not just any nonprofit is set up. This is how our nonprofit is set up. And this is how we go about managing, tracking, here's where the money comes from. If you ever see this on a financial statement, this is why, you know, those kinds of, I love the idea of just having a, a financial orientation mm -hmm. where board members can ask all the questions they want to ask and get a really good understanding of how that piece of it works. And then the last thing I'll say to that, actually, I'm thinking is a segue into another question for you, which is about strategy. How often is organizational strategy a part of the conversations when you're consulting with a nonprofit about their financial planning and their management. And I've always, I've often lamented that for some reason, the, the financial management, budgeting, long-term financial management, understanding the primary financial statements, all of that are for some reason completely separated from the strategic plan and the mm -hmm. conversations about where we're trying to go as an organization and what we're trying to achieve and those conversations just don't happen together for some reason very often. Is that your experience? Yes. A lot of times you see the strategic plan over on one side and the finances on the other side. And that makes absolutely no sense because in order to be able to satisfy your strategic objectives, you usually need to have money to be able to do that. So really you need to be talking about them being together and the strategy behind the financials to then touch on those objectives. I think that needs to be something that you're looking at at least quarterly, but within your presentation to the board, you could make that tie back 
to the strategic plan and say how some of the programs or something that you're concentrating on or grant that you're trying to get or whatever it might be that's unique in that month, how that aligns and brings you back to one of your strategic objectives. And how does, um, where does leadership come into all this? You know, we, we, mm-hmm. what we're talking about right now is, you know, very functional. I mean, you got, there's bookkeeping practices, there are accounting standards to go by, there's flow and process and documentation. Um, there's a set level of foundational requirement, and then there are the nuances of how each nonprofit wants to set up their system. But where does leadership come into this? This, after all, is a podcast about mm-hmm. leadership. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for example, Nonprofit CEOs are often not the most expert when it comes to finance in the room. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got board members who are more of an expert, maybe their chief financial officer, maybe even just their bookkeeper is more understanding and knowledgeable about things. What, what do you, what would you say is the leader's responsibility, the CEO's responsibility when it comes to leading the financial conversations and practices and strategies? I think having them understand and being in touch and in constant communication with whoever is doing the finance is important so that they can take that information and show how it is interacting with their objectives, the strategic plan, because that's that's what the CEO or the executive director is going to be focused on, is the large picture. Where does this organization, where is this going? And so... They, they don't need to understand the nitty gritty behind all the different transactions that are being done on a day-to-day basis. They just need to have a general understanding of different margins, different trends, different areas that might have a larger concern or things that are going well. So being able to have somebody that can take the finance financials and the financial statements and all the activity and be able to discuss it with the executive director or the CEO so that they understand what is going well, what isn't going well, and what needs to be done because that's that's the piece that they're going to be focusing on. So as the finance individual, you should be going in and describing, okay, this is what I see as something that's maybe not going to what we think is the budget, providing that information so that then the leader can take that and say, okay, what do we do with this? How are we going to get there? What do I need to communicate? What needs to be an objective or a priority for our board? So it's all about providing the correct information so that the leader can then make those decisions and lead everybody towards what the new priority or what the focus needs to be to make sure that you are reaching your budget or reaching those target performance metrics. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, let me ask you one more sort of technical question and mm-hmm. ask you to grab some things off the top of your head if you can. But mm-hmm. um, if you had to list, you know, five or six or seven or whatever, things you would expect to see in a nonprofit. So a nonprofit, you know, calls you up and says, hey, we want to we use your company um, to get more efficient use of our, our bookkeeping, whatever. In terms of the staff, the board structure and the core practices, what are five or so things that are givens? Like you need to have 
this <laughs> to be, you know, this is the ideal that you come in at least with the following practices or structures. Mm-hmm. What would those be? So I think that it's very important to have at least one individual that is an employee of the nonprofit. It, there are many nonprofits out there that have all volunteers, but it, it, makes a difference when somebody it's their paid position to be focusing on the nonprofit. So that's one thing that I always like to see is that there's somebody that is the leader of the group. I also like to see that there is a board and that it's an established board or there has been thought behind who is on that board. I also like to see if they understand who are their biggest donors, what grants they're going after, and that their mission and their vision align with what their financials are saying. So one of the things that I do as a finance professional is the tax form 990 is out there for public viewing for any nonprofit. So I look at that and see, okay, if if they're saying that their main program is x are they putting enough funds towards that so seeing that if they have policies and procedures asking those questions understanding how they've done the accounting in the past and how they got to the point where they are so if it's only been a volunteer is that why you're looking for somebody either internally or an outsourced option Or is it something that you have struggled with that you've had somebody, but they're not trained? So understanding those key pieces and making sure that the finances haven't been ignored for the entirety of the nonprofit. So looking to see, have they had bank reconciliation? So some of those very technical pieces to make sure that The funds haven't just been coming in, being spent, and nobody really knows what's going on. And now it's getting to a point that it's like, well, either we're growing or we're not. And we're afraid that we don't have enough money to be able to do this any longer. You have to have an understanding of how the organization got into that place. I'll tell you, we could go all day long and uncover all kinds of topics and questions and good practices and things to consider. I do appreciate the fact that we've at least had an opportunity with someone of your knowledge to just hit the pause button and say, hey, don't forget that this financial stuff is not just day to day uh, mundane stuff. There's a there's mm-hmm. thinking behind it and there has to be both strategy and competence and stewardship. We are stewarding public funds and, Mm -hmm. and we're making a mission promise. And when we make that mission promise, we've got to be good stewards of, of the financial picture as well. So I really appreciate at least we've only touched on a a Mm -hmm. fraction of, of the topics we could talk about, but I just wanted to pause and I, I appreciated the opportunity to talk with you. We don't normally get this technical on the show. We're more talking about leadership, but this is something leaders need to pay attention to. And I, I really do appreciate that. I'm going to head into my, my final two questions that I ask all my guests, but before I do, let me ask you this. Is there anything else that you would want to share with our listeners, particularly those nonprofit leaders that my questions haven't given you a chance to talk about yet? 
I think the biggest takeaway is to not be afraid of the finances. And if you ignore them, they're only going to get worse. And so, <laughs> so you don't have to be a finance expert. You can have somebody do that for you and do what you do best and be able to lead the organization. And that it's, it's not a scary endeavor that there are people out there that love this. So don't make it something that is going to stress you out. You can be a wonderful nonprofit leader, CEO, executive director, and not have a strong background in finance. That's why others do that piece so that you can shine at what you do best. Ooh, very well said. And yeah, that's why you're here. Uh, by, by the way, we'll say it again at the very end, but for those of you that might want to learn more about um, what Alex is doing and about her firm, uh, the website to go to is betterwaycpa.com, betterwaycpa.com for, for more information. Let me ask you the final two questions, Alex. Who is a yes. leader or two in your life that comes to mind as someone who maybe is, has been most influential on your leadership and where you are in your journey? And why? So then the person that always comes to mind is Mary Medley. So she is executive director for the Colorado Society of CPAs, which is a nonprofit. And she is just such a dynamic leader and she's so encouraging and she speaks her truth. And when she speaks to you about I think she's been the mentor for half the CPAs in the state of Colorado, but it's because she has such a deep understanding of what it takes to be a leader, not only in finances, but just in an organization overall, because she is not a finance leader. She is not a CPA, but she has led a CPA organization for 48 years. So she has just been somebody that I have looked up to that I have had a lot of input on my career from and just seeing how she interacts with everybody and how she's able to lead a successful nonprofit has just been really encouraging. And as a woman as well. I mean, she's been doing this. She's been in that position since the late 80s when she was one of the only female executives. So getting her perspective on that as well has been very beneficial. So you not only don't have to be a CPA to run a nonprofit, you don't have to be a CPA to run a nonprofit of CPAs. Correct. <laughs> that is absolutely uh, true. That is quite a leadership a gift right there <laughs> that she has. That's inspired. Was it Howard Cosell that said, I never played the game? Wasn't that his book? And, uh, you know, you see like, you know, coaches, managers, things, people who know that there are the superstars out there that they would never be, but they know how to lead and they know how to mentor and they know how to lift up and they know how to create mm -hmm. space for other people to succeed. That's a really inspiring story. Is there anyone yes. else that, that, that you want to talk about or comes to mind? Oh. I don't think so. You know, I, I really think that she has been the largest inspiration. Of course, I have people that have been leaders within organizations that I have been um, a part of. I was part of a, a strong organizational leadership team at the library district that really worked together mm. a few of our departments. But really, she's the only one that comes to mind as like a singled out, has done a lot of contributing to what I have done in my, I can in see my that. path. 
I can see how that would be. Okay, last question, Alex. And again, thanks again so much for coming on the show. I appreciate um, the time that you've taken and the expertise. But um, the last question I have for you is if you had a megaphone and you had 20 seconds to shout out to all the leaders of the world a key message that you think all leaders need to hear, you're sort of, you know, the Alex Romero 20-second soundbite on the most important tenet of leadership. What would that be? To be a strong leader, to make sure that the job is being done correctly. So you need to manage the work, but you need to lead the people mm. and you to need to make those connections and you need to learn about your team and every aspect of your team members and be compassionate and also think about where you've come from and learn from what you've experienced along your way to become a leader. Wow, that's a great use of 20 seconds right there. And you rang my bell on that one because uh, one of the Druckerisms, Peter Drucker said, you manage things, you lead people. And you repeated that so eloquently in your own way. And I appreciate that. Alex, thanks again for coming on the show. Folks, if you want to know more about Alex's firm, what she's doing, and maybe even reach out for some help, virtually go to betterwaycpa.com in the meantime lead on 